tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. A Healthy Options special with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next. Good morning. Hi, I'm Rhonda Feynman. The subject for today's follow-up program, a Healthy Options special, is again a timely one. Ticks, Lyme disease, and tick-borne co-infections. And again, we have uh, Dr. Beatrice Santier, who's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the American College of Physicians, board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Santier came to Maine 25 years ago, I guess by way of the National Health Service Corps. And for the past 17 years, she's racked up thousands of hours investigating Lyme disease, related tick-borne disorders, uh, etc. <laughs> she currently participates on the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup, is a member of the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, ILADS. I- I- Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders to professional community groups throughout New England. She's given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine. Welcome, Dr. Santier. Thank you. Second guest is Constance Happy Dickey, uh, RN. She's from Hamden, Maine, and has worked for Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years. Since 1999, she had a special interest in Lyme and related diseases and has spent much time and energy researching tick-borne diseases. Happy Dickey was on the board of directors of ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, from 2001 to 2007. She facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in-person and and online, and she's also an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a newly formed nonprofit dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. Welcome. Good morning, Rhonda. Thanks Welcome. for having us. Yeah. I think um, that we need to uh, tell people that we this is our follow-up. We've already done a show on June 6th. It's on the archives. So we're going to do a little bit of review, but I want to get into uh, a lot more detail about some of the co-infections and some of the treatment strategies that, that you, you know about and uh, are experts in. So uh, perhaps we could just start off a little bit with um, Lyme disease. Everyone thinks ticks. What do we do to protect ourselves? I guess the best pre- way of treating Lyme disease is not to ever get it. So um, I know, Happy, you gave us a great review last time. Would you do that for us again? Um, yeah, prevention. Um, prevention, first, um, you need to know where ticks like to hang out. They like a certain amount of moisture. Um, they're in the kind of undergrowth and understory in the in the deep grass and in the the trees. Um, They don't like it where it's hot and dry. Um, So you need to know where you're going and and how you need to properly be um, dressed and prepared um, to deal with ticks should you encounter them. And certainly long pants, long sleeve shirts, everything tucked in gives you a certain level um, into the barrier. Socks. Yes, pants tucked into the socks, shirt tucked into the pants, gives you a barrier, <clears throat> and then you need to 
only put um, repellents on your exposed skin area. You can treat your clothes with permethrin, um, which is a tick killer, and that you can buy clothes that are already pre-treated or you can do the treatment yourself. Um, certainly the most important step in prevention is doing a full body naked tick check when you come home at the end of the day. Tick checks. Yeah, tick checks. Tick checks are looking and feeling all over the body. Some folks prefer to do that in the shower, and, and that's certainly functional because you are scrubbing everywhere. But it's looking and feeling because the stage of the tick that is most troublesome for humans is the stage that's active now, the nymphal tick, and that's about the size of a poppy seed. Um, so easy to miss if you're just looking. If you see a new freckle, uh, you have to get a look and see if that freckle has legs. Um, uh, if the uh -oh. freckle moves, probably not a freckle. Uh, but looking and feeling, because you're feeling for that bump, uh, especially in the hot spots. I, I call them the hot spots. Ticks crawl, they crawl up. So uh, starting from the bottom up, behind the knee, in the groin area, uh, a lot of tick bites happen on or about the hip actually, at the waistband, along the bra line, uh, consider the navel as well, uh, in the armpits, uh, behind the ears, in the scalp. So the hot spots, these are, the ticks are basically trying to be good animals. They're looking for a good blood meal, so they're going to try to get to a place where that's easily gotten for them. So... All those good veins and capillaries, <coughs> and, yeah, and if you find easy a, access, easy access. If you find a tick, I, I often try to tell folks try not to panic. I mean, the initial reaction is kind of oh, whoa, get that out of me. But and you and mean yes, one that's embedded, an embedded tick. Uh, if mm -hmm. it's just crawling on you, I like the tape method for removal. Oh, yeah, take a, a piece of scotch tape, a piece of uh, duct tape, you know, your 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 preference, and. Grab the tick on tape, then you know where the tick is. Don't flick it off. Don't brush it off, because now you've got a tick at large. So of if you course. grab the tick with tape, you've got tick in hand. Very nice. Oh, so and that's that's the best way to dispose of it as well. It, on you tape. know, if you fold over a piece of tape oh, with the yeah. tick in it. Right. Okay. Whoa. So, if it, if you find an embedded tick, it's a little bit different. Try nice. not to panic. You have a little bit of time. This is a process that takes a little bit of time. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, the, in order to transmit infection, first of all, not all ticks carry infection. Uh, not even all deer ticks are carrying infection. Um, very difficult to know what the percentage is. It's a variable percentage. It might be 80% of ticks are infected in one area. It could be 5% in an area two miles away. So we right. don't know, but what we therefore use in the state of Maine is 50%. We, we assume you've got a 50-50 chance of having a, an infected tick. That just keeps the well, playing field even. Well, well I, I do know, uh, on, on a personal note, because we did discuss my primary research for the last show, where <laughs> I did do, get an embedded tick, and I did send it off to Igenix, and we can talk about where things can get tested, and it was negative, so... I, 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 I beat the odds on that one. But Wonderful. Yes, yeah, so I, I, for my devoted listeners who've been calling, <laughs> well, well, so there it is. So it does happen that you don't get Lyme from a tick, but... Absolutely. But, okay. But the process 
does take a little bit of time. That is, when the tick begins feeding, the bacteria is located in the mid-gut of the tick. As the tick starts to feed, something about that process uh, triggers the bacteria to multiply like crazy, get back into tick circulatory system, and make its way to the salivary glands so that the way ticks feed, this will gross people out, but, you know. Be prepared if you're eating. Yeah, Put they, your spoon down. That's right. They suck a little, spit a little. <laughs> and so as they suck a little, spit a little, um, the bacteria can be transmitted once it reaches the salivary glands into the, the wound where the tick is feeding. And so it is a process that takes some time. How much time? Well, no, we don't have a perfect answer to that question. Um, in the past, it had been suggested that it needed 72 hours for this process to happen. And what we know is that it, at 72 hours, if the tick is carrying the Lyme bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, pretty much everyone will have transmitted it by 72 hours. So good to know. Um, then we started to say, well, maybe it's 48 hours and maybe it's 36 hours. I think the official um, timing now is about 24 hours. But that doesn't mean it can't happen before that. It doesn't mean it's zero transmission till 24 hours. It's something lower, but not zero. So some transmission can happen earlier than that. And so I guess I use 12 hours as kind of a safe time frame as far as Lyme goes. Now, the co-infections can be transmitted faster. And even Lyme can be transmitted faster, especially if you have what I call a complicated tick removal. And by that, I mean that you annoy the tick in some way. Uh, so uh, the proper removal is either with very fine point tweezers, grabbing the tick as close to the skin as possible, and using steady, gentle pressure, pulling it straight out. You don't twist it. You don't do anything to alter that tick's happiness until it is out. And even then, I don't, you know, you don't have to alter its happiness. Um, the, the, really? It's, it's just a tick. Yeah. The, it's the, really not, it doesn't have evil intent. I don't think just so. Just because it happens to carry, perhaps. It does evil, but it's it not evil It does evil, but not, intended. yes, exactly. <laughs> let's, let's not, yes, be anthropomorphize too much here. Let's not. <laughs> but the, the other method is using a tick scoop, and yes. you can uh, slide, which looks like kind of a, a teaspoon measure, with a V-notch cut in the front of it. And you put that V-notch under the tick, sort of um, getting the mouth parts into that notch and then just continuing that straight motion across the area that the tick is attached in. And what you end up with is a tick notched or wedged into that V-notch in your little teaspoon scoop. So those are two methods that have been tested in the laboratory or tried and true and are safe to do. People have heard of trying to suffocate the tick using things like petroleum jelly and getting it to back out by that method. Or the other really popular one I, I see on the internet all the time now is um, uh, Dawn dish soap on a yes. cotton ball and rub the tick and it'll come off on the cotton ball. And maybe it will. The problem is that you may annoy the tick with that process. And if you annoy the tick, you can make it regurgitate or throw up. And if the gut contents gets into the wound, that can take what would have been an innocent duration of attachment mm. and make it quite guilty. And I have seen uh, mm. attachment times of four hours uh, produce infection because of a mishandling of the removal. The other thing is if, you know, you pull the tick apart and you've got kind of 
destroyed tick that that also yes. gets tick guts in the wound. So we're trying to avoid tick guts in the wound. So whatever you can do to leave this tick happy until you remove it either with tweezers or a tick scoop, that's the way to go. You have a little bit of time, so you can. So from then, um, what, are, what are we seeing? 50% will have a, some sort of rash? We don't know. Um, it's, and, and why some and not others? We don't know. Great question. Uh, we don't know why some people do and some people don't get a rash, uh, whether it's a, because of your immune response or whether it's something to do with the strain of the bacteria that's uh, carried within the tick. But it has has been said in the past that 80% of people with Lyme get a rash. In the state of Maine, what we've seen over the years is a decreasing percentage of confirmed cases with evidence of a rash. Uh, last year, in 2011, I think the number was 49%, so under 50%. The year before that, it was 42%. Um, in past years, it's been as high as you know 70%. But I think the most important feature here is that you don't have to have a rash to get Lyme disease. The onset of the rash generally is three to 30 days after the tick attachment. Um, it can happen as soon as 24 hours after. In the first 24 hours, an eraser-sized redness at the site of the tick attachment, uh, we really don't get excited about. That's probably a reaction to the tick itself. Mm -hmm. After 24 hours, if it's expanding, and that really is the hallmark of a rash from Lyme disease, an expanding red rash um, is the most common presentation, and it expands um, sort of centrifugally, you know, evenly, or not necessarily into a circle, but it expands in all directions in some way. So it can be a circle, it can be oval, it will follow the plane of the tissue that it's, that it's located in. So an expanding red rash at the site of a tick bite is, is concerning. Of course, most people with Lyme disease don't recall well, a tick. That's that's what I was going to say. Uh, happy when in in the groups that you're working with, or is that the story you're hearing more? Uh, typically, frequently? typically, um, especially people who have um, late disseminated Lyme disease, didn't ever see a tick or a rash, and didn't really know that they were sick. It was an it was a gradual onset of their illness. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, and it doesn't have to be uh, what we think of as a bullseye rash. A great point. Thanks for making that, Rhonda. Although the bullseye rash is classic for Lyme disease, and if anyone sees a bullseye rash, that sort of target appearance with central clearing and concentric rings, everybody on the planet knows that's Lyme disease. Unfortunately, the classic rash is not the most common rash. The most common rash is a uniformly red expanding rash. Now, can you get hives or other kinds of skin issues, There are, you say? There are some atypical kinds of rashes, and absolutely. Now, hives themselves Maybe. we think of as being itchy. Itchy, yes, and that's a different Typically, thing. a Lyme rash has no symptom with it. It might okay. be warm to the touch. It might mm -hmm. be a little bit raised. Mm. Um, but in most circumstances, it doesn't itch, it doesn't hurt. If it does itch, it tends to be a mild itch. Does that mean it can't be super itchy? No. Never say mm -hmm. never. Never say always. You know? Right. Um, and if it hurts, it tends to be a burning sensation. Um, I, I've read recently that about a third of Lyme rashes have some symptom associated with it like that. But mm -hmm. 
still that leaves us the majority of rashes as having no symptoms except the presence of the rash. Okay. Well, it is, uh, it, it, let's talk about some of the co-infections. Okay. What, what, what are the symptoms? What are we looking at? People have, some haven't even heard of, of some of these, uh, and, and they are significant, and maybe we can yeah. talk about that a little bit. Well, in the state of Maine, we know that um, a higher number than in past years of, of ticks that have been examined for um, more or different organisms are carrying them. And so by co-infection, we just mean uh, bacteria or, or um, pyroplasms that travel in the same ticks that carry Lyme disease. So Ixodes scapularis, commonly called the deer tick, specifically, although supposed could be in any tick, but that's what we're talking about today. So, right. well, um, right. so dog ticks aren't yeah. totally benign, possibly. So, well, yeah, right. Yeah, so, no We're, tick is your friend at this point. Okay, but um, the major co-infections we're seeing here in the state uh, are anaplasma, which is a white blood cell parasite. Um, so it it tends to invade. Uh, live inside of white blood cells. And so it's a parasite. We're not talking about a bacteria. Oh, it is Lyme a bacteria. I'm, I okay. call it a parasite. See, this is one of the yeah. questions. There's a little confusion between a bacteria, the parasite, the protozoa. Well, we... let's, let's call it a bacteria because okay. it is a bacteria. Okay. It has to live inside of cells, or at least as far as we now know, it has to live inside of cells to, to survive, and that's why I'm thinking of it and as that's why it's parasite, parasite versus... It's living off a healthy... Yes. So. Okay, but it is a bacteria. Right. Okay. And um, that's becoming increasingly common. Uh, the state of Maine, um, no, the Maine Lyme uh, Research Center down in Portland at, out of Maine Medical Center did a really elegant dog study looking at um, both Lyme disease and anaplasma in dogs, expecting fully that they would find a limited geographic distribution, and they were a little surprised to find, and this is, uh, I don't know, three or more years ago now, a little surprised to find that anaplasma uh, detected in dogs came from as far up as uh, mid to northern Penobscot County. So mid-state and down, we definitely have uh, evidence that dogs are being infected with anaplasma. And we have evidence for people infections with anaplasma as well and anaplasma in the ticks. So uh, the reason we care about co-infections is that they can complicate uh, Lyme disease itself and they can cause illness themselves. The acute sort of anaplasma infection uh, shows up with fever, flu-like symptoms. Uh, about 25% of adults may have a rash more children will have a rash, tends to be a more generalized uh, uh, patchy red rash. Uh -huh. um, so that's different. A little different mm -hmm. from what we usually see with Lyme. So if someone's gotten a, a tick bite and then all of a sudden starts, never had skin issues and all of a sudden has that and with all accompanying with, fever and with such. With fever and, yeah, summer flu is a big deal. Pay attention. It's not always a virus. It may be one of these other infectors, especially right. if you have the possibility of tick exposure. So anaplasma is one. The other uh, is Babesia. Uh, babesia is a red blood cell uh, parasite. Mm. It has to live inside of red blood cells. It's a lot like malaria in the way it uh, functions. And um, 
that certainly had an increasing number of cases in the state of Maine over the years. So uh, another co-infection. Uh, and requires quite different treatment from the treatment we use just for Lyme disease and can complicate a Lyme disease infection requiring, causing both of those infections to need longer duration treatment in order to clear them. If you get a Babesia, and most people who get Babesia, if they just get Babesia, actually don't know it. Uh, consequently, it's becoming a, a more important issue in the blood supply. Uh, so oh. people don't necessarily know that they've had a Babesia a infection. And it can be transmitted. Yes, it can, by blood Lyme transfusion. It, through a transfusion and Lyme as well? Well, we know it goes through the placenta. Well, right. we know well, that it can be transmitted that way. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there have been some cases reported of Lyme transmission in the blood supply, but certainly not with the same uh, frequency that we've seen with Babesia. So that's a, a less clear um, transmission route. Uh, but Babesia, it is a clear transmission route. Now, when it's an acute infection, again, we have high fever, uh, sweats, chills, and if a person is immune compromised in some way, particularly if they don't have a functioning spleen, this can be a fatal infection and immediately, abruptly kind of fatal. So in elder individuals or individuals without spleens, we worry a lot more about acute babesial infection. So they're presenting fairly in a similar fashion. Fever and flu-like symptoms. Yeah, so, yeah. okay. Well, uh, let's finish the co-infections, yeah. then we could talk about a little bit about yeah. targeting Well, the last one treatment. we've absolutely identified in the state of Maine is Ehrlichia, which technically is thought to be transmitted by a different tick, uh, uh, the Lone Star tick, or um, Amblyoma americanum. How about that? Very distinguished. Impressive. Thank very distinct. Thank you very much. That'll be on the quiz later. Thank yeah. you. Uh, very distinguishing, uh, distinguished-looking tick. In general, a little smaller than dog ticks tend to be. Um, the male and the nymph are uniformly dark-colored. So dark-colored ticks, uniformly dark ticks, ought to be on our list of things that uh, make us nervous. Or in the female, a very telltale white spot right on its back. Mm -hmm. Now that's not a huge population in the state, but there apparently must be enough in the state because we are seeing more Ehrlichia cases um, in the state than in the past. Uh -huh. So, so we're not seeing that in the, and is that true, what you're seeing in your groups, Happy? Um, right. Um, a lot of times um, people are only infected with Lyme disease, but you know, there are people who know that they have co-infections um, and they need to be treated differently than with just Lyme. And it, it is possible also to have a co-infection and not have Lyme, right. although oh. it's, it's... That's more rare. rare. Yes, so, so if you have just a co-infection, do we now call it an infection? I, 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 I know. Guess <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the thing that uh, the vector-borne group has learned is that, uh, you know, it used to be only single digits in percentage-wise of ticks would be multiply infected, and we are in double digits now for ticks that are multiply infected, and that's got that's that, the attention of uh, of the main CDC. Let me just say that you're for our listeners who just tuned in. You're this is WERU Community Radio. This is Healthy Options Special on ticks and Lyme disease and co-infection. 
Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, re registered nurse about ticks and the Lyme disease and the co-infections. Um, so our lichia, uh, lichia can also, I understand, be in dog ticks. Is that, uh, am yes. I wrong or is it the Lone Star tick or, and deer ticks as well? Or? Well, you know, the deer yeah. tick thing is not to. clear to me. Uh, but okay. I think of it as being available in deer ticks as well, and yet oh. I, I don't have good evidence to say that, so okay. I guess I'll have to keep that to well, myself. We'll hold but up. yes, dog ticks as okay. well. Dog ticks. So um, now we also hear the word spirochete with all of this. What is a, a spirochete? Is, spirochete. Well, you could say spirochete. I, I don't disagree. I, I'm, I'm just, from New York. We talk <laughs> funny. Okay. You, I bet you say antibiotic as well. No. Oh, no, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Spirochete is a corkscrew-shaped bacteria, and for our purposes today, that refers to the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi. The other spirochete people might um, have some uh, experience hearing about is uh, this, the bacteria that causes syphilis, the treponema pallidum. So that's also a spirochete. And basically, they, they are corkscrew-shaped, and they have particular growth characteristics that make them a little unique. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Lyme disease also would show up as a high fever? You know, we're taking that, we realize we talked about the co-infections, but what are the symptoms? I, I think typically, you know. And we don't know what that typically, means because whatever. it can attack so many different systems, right. right? But it's usually a gradual onset. It usually, uh, fever is one of the components. Uh, terrible fatigue uh, you know, lethargy that uh, can't get out of your own way, lead weight kind of feeling, feeling like you're getting the flu. So fever, fatigue, headache, stiff neck, um, achy muscles, achy joints, uh, those would be fairly common symptoms of an early infection with Lyme. Those symptoms can recur and other organ systems can become involved if uh, the, the infection persists, uh, you can have symptoms where the light hurts your eyes, some people sore throat, um, abdominal pain, more common in children than in adults. Mm. Uh, sensitivity in the skin is another thing. And it kind of makes sense because those are the, the organs that this bacteria likes to go to. It, it is particularly attracted to uh, skin, to connective tissue, and to nerve tissue. Uh, different strains probably attracted to each of those. Uh -huh. So there are different strains. And are, you mentioned children. Uh, is there a different presentation for children versus an adult? Or Fairly similar with a few exceptions, like the abdominal pain thing. Why it's more common in children than in adults, I really couldn't okay. say. So abdominal pain as in sharp, stabby, stomach ache, mom, stomach my belly ache, hurts. nausea, uh, okay. all of those. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's talk uh, a little bit about, about the treatment strategies that you're recommending and, or thinking about. or Well, treatment strategies. Uh, treatment That's strategies it. need to be based on a few things. Um, one is how early the infection is presenting. That certainly influences what you're thinking about whether you suspect Lyme alone or whether you suspect a co-infection. And in early disease, most of us, if we're identifying it early, most of us are likely to treat Lyme disease. You know, if we have a rash and flu-like symptoms, 
life is good, makes it uh, pretty straightforward how we're going to approach it. There are many different approaches to this. There are at least two uh, standards of care that have uh, been given some credence. And the Infectious Disease Society of America has some clinical practice guidelines that are out and often cited as, as a resource for this. I tend to base my treatment approach on the microbiology of the bacteria, knowing that it's a slow grower, has a very long doubling time, that is the time it takes to reproduce. Uh, for example, it has a 12 to 24 hour doubling time compared with the bacteria that cause strep throat or that cause urinary tract infections, which have about a 15 to 30 minute doubling oh. time. Mm -hmm. So that influences how I think about treatment for Lyme in terms of duration of exposure of that bacteria in your system to the antibiotic. The early studies by Luft suggested that it was how long you expose the bacteria to the antibiotic versus how much of the antibiotic you get in the system that determines eradication. So what we're looking for is treating long enough to eradicate the disease. So you can see in the literature um, a, a timing of treatment that varies from uh, three weeks to well, maybe even 10 days, but I could argue about that with you a little, uh, out to as long as six weeks for early Lyme. Those who emphasize the shorter treatment strategies uh, stress the success of treatment and the risks of overtreatment. Those who emphasize the longer treatments look more carefully at the failures, treatment failures, and the consequences of uh, prolonged infection. So the important thing is to follow up. You have to follow up with your physician. Be sure that when you are started on treatment that um, you, you have a return appointment schedule to make sure that the symptoms that you're presenting with are gone. That's what we're looking for. Um, a lot of the studies that we look to for guidance um, use different markers of what success is. Yes. So if, if you don't consider success return to pre-illness condition, then maybe you get a little comfortable with people still being kind of fatigued at the end or having other symptoms. So I kind of like people to return to their pre-illness condition unless there's a darn good reason they can't. So I, I think follow-up. The important thing is to is just, you know, do good medicine and make sure you're receiving good medical care. And, and I, I guess we talked about this last time. Our health professionals want to get this right. They want us to be well. Nobody wants us to, to not get it right. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of uh, treating an individual. We can use all the statistics and all of the guidelines and all of the information we want, but when it comes down to the practice of medicine and the reception of medicine, it's a one-on-one -on -one experience. And so it's an individualized treatment that we want every time. So, um, so you've come in with uh, some of these symptoms and all of a sudden you're exhausted or have joint pain or something, uh, what's the first line? And you just took the tick off or you just, you know, you're having something. Is it? Well, having a smoking tick is really nice, <laughs> isn't it? You know, um, when we can. Uh, you mean like the one I brought in? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it, it's Visual aid. Can you see it? It's very tiny. 
if you uh, if you show up with uh, the tick that was on you and here you are within three to 30 days, uh, you've got a rash and flu-like symptoms, you've made it pretty easy for your practitioner. They're going to get this right. right. <laughs> um, do, you know. do you go, so the, there are the, um, I guess, what, doxycycline people talk about. Yeah. And <clears throat> some people say, well, you just need to do two, di- two days worth. Some people say the 10, and we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the uh, this comes into my office all I the time, so how do we have this conversation? What's yeah. happened is we've got a misinterpretation <clears throat> of information. When, when, if you have a rash and flu-like symptoms, we are not preventing Lyme disease. We are treating Lyme disease. You've got Lyme disease at that point. We don't do any tests if, if that's your presentation because, A, the tests take some time to become positive, two to six weeks before your body mounts an antibody response if it's going to do that. Um, and secondarily, we don't want to wait that long. So um, the, the action at the point of uh, presentation then is treat. The confusion with this two-day treatment or this two-dose treatment is for tick bite what's called prophylaxis, that is prevention of infection. And, and we ought to spend some time on that. But that is not treatment for Lyme. Treatment for Lyme is in the literature. Nobody's got it in the literature for under 10 days. And interestingly, the 10-day uh, recommendation comes from a, a trial that compared 10 days with 14 days with 21 days and suggested that 10 days was superior to 21 days. Now, I'm a simple thinker. Does that make sense? It, I, could have, I could believe that it would be equal to, but how could 10 days be superior mm. to 21? So you have to really go back to that primary literature and wonder, uh, wh- what were you looking at? How does that make sense? You know, you use the common sense test. So how do you determine dosage? And at oh. that, yeah, that's, it well, seems. Well, you don't, it, and I, you know, it, you, you yeah. and your practitioner determine the dosage, and it's, yeah. generally speaking, doxycycline is considered a very good first-line medicine for people who are over eight years old, because all the tetracyclines uh, have an effect on um, teeth uh, prior to that age, and so we try to avoid them. In, uh, in and, children. And, and doxycycline is a tetracycline, a tetracycline family. Right. Mm-hmm. And doxycycline is nice because it treats Lyme and also is active against uh, Ehrlichia or Anaplasma. So you're getting a little more for your money when you <laughs> use doxycycline or can use it. So then I have a lot of clients who can't tolerate it. And we're doing a lot of Chinese herbs or we're doing uh, different kinds of probiotics, acidophilus and that kind of thing. But still, so when we run into that with antibiotics. There are alternatives, of course. You know, amoxicillin is an antibiotic that's been around a long time and has proven efficacy against uh, the Lyme bacteria. Um, The others, the only antibiotic that's actually ever been FDA approved for early Lyme disease is cefuroxime axotil, another one for the for the quiz later, um, uh, its Bi-pack. trade name is Seftin. Seftin. They haven't given us a uh, consideration for mentioning it here, but uh, no, we. Sephuroxymaxitil though has uh, proven efficacy in early Lyme. So there are a number of alternative antibiotics. The the one category that I caution people about using are the erythromycin antibiotics, which is commonly one that we use if someone has penicillin allergy. Um, although in the lab, erythromycin looks really good against this bacteria, in people it doesn't tend to be as good. Um, not entirely clear why that is. The later 
um, generation erythromycin antibiotics may be better, but um, not as good as the amoxicillin crowd, the penicillin crowd, or um, the tetracyclines. So, you know, to give specific advice over no, the radio. No, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, no, of course not. But, but. Um, just kind of uh, getting a general idea what someone yeah. might expect. Now, I, I've also in the literature that I've read is sometimes when uh, that the when attacked or the the spirochete, the bacteria will go into a cyst form. And how do we work with that or do we or do, do we do a, I, I know there's ideas of combinations of antibiotics going for different levels or different aspects of the cell uh, well great question and, and yes that's th some beautiful research some from Brorson and Brorson in Europe some from um, Priak Mursik is that it and and the other group is out of uh, the University of Rhode Island just some really lovely stuff. They called them, out of URI, they called them uh, starvation forms. And it's basically, many bacteria do this. If you have them in an adverse condition, and antibiotics would count as an adverse condition, uh, they protect themselves. And they may uh, quickly go into cyst form, which is very interesting. And that changes which antibiotics are going to be able to be active, because Different antibiotics work in different ways to get rid of the infection. So it can matter. The good news is, the good news is, pretty much anything we do with early Lyme works. Pretty much anything works. Now, there have also been treatment failures with everything we try. The good news about that, retreatment works. So the key for, for patients and their practitioners is to stay the course, um, follow up, do good medicine. You know, you return, you follow up, you make sure that we have cleared this infection. And if we haven't, then you need more investigation or a different approach to treatment. You just need to be uh, persistent because it, even in early disease, but more especially with later manifestations, there are other things that you may have that may look like Lyme and not be Lyme. On the other hand, you can also have more than one thing at a time. We love it when people just have one disease, we treat them and they get better. <laughs> right. Uh, life is not simple though. Well, I certainly see a number of people and, and ha happy, uh, you probably do in the groups that you're work and the people you're working with where they're coming in 10 years later, five years later, and how do we deal with the those the chronic case? We're giving, we're giving a great best case scenario, but there are folks who have been not diagnosed or don't know that they have. Well, I think often in those people um, that have been supposedly sufficiently treated and haven't gotten better, then that's when you have to start looking for the co-infections and doing the treatment for those because the treatment for co-infections is different than it is for Lyme. How, how is that different? Um, yeah. B can address that. Oh, but I want to hear more, <laughs> but I don't want to cut you, you know, off. But, well, yeah. Um, we'll get to that. The um, as she said, the um, anaplasma in the Ehrlichia is well treated with doxycycline. Usually, um, the Babesia is the one that's more like a malaria. Um, is treated with other um, agents, commonly mepron and zithromax, um, malarone, um, and there's a few other unusual. Um, 
Yeah, if you don't like people, you can give them uh, clindamycin <laughs> and, and uh, chloroquine and make right. them really sick. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. And then some people do very well but on that. But some people right. do do I very mean, well. I, I'm, I'm teasing You know somebody, right? <laughs> right. right. And, and, you know, we are talking about, we're throwing out these names, but what what I think the point is that that the diagnosis that there needs to be some Lyme sophistication, some sophistication about what we're looking at to actually help somebody. Well, and even before the sophistication, I, I think it has to be on your radar. You know, I, I've long um, tried to encourage folks that if you don't think it, you're not going to see it. Um, you have to at least consider the possibility that this is part of what might be wrong for someone. So um, we we have to really... Uh, not dismiss uh, persisting symptoms. We have to not dismiss the person who who doesn't completely recover. We have to continue. We have to be vigilant, and we have to um, make sure we return people to the best health they can have. Um, first, again, this is WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to Healthy Options, and my guest guests. Today are Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy-Dickey, who's a registered nurse. We're discussing and continuing our conversation about ticks, Lyme disease, co-infections, treatment. And um, so we're, uh, we're discussing all the, some of these antibiotic options. Um, let me ask you about the immune system response. And since we're talking about um, the, cyst, the uh, bacteria perhaps going into a cyst form when attacked, does the immune system cause this? Is this, we think of... Do you know we want to have a healthy immune system? But I'm, I guess I'm thinking of the flu of 1918, where in fact having a healthy immune system was actually what was very deadly yeah. to that particular virus. Is that something that we have to think about here? Or well, it, great questions and boy, very mm -hmm. circumspect. But having a healthy immune system clearly is in all of our best interest. Sure. Um, and I think the immune system most of the time gets it right. Uh, so it, sometimes it just needs uh, a little assistance from us to uh, get it over the top so it can take care of the rest of the infection. I don't have any illusion that the antibiotic does all the work. And, and so using antibiotics is part of a process. Supporting a healthy immune system is, is critical to anyone, especially individuals who have been ill for some time, because we know that these infections themselves appear to have an impact on the immune system's ability to fight infection, too. Um, they can ev avoid the immune system's detection. They're very sophisticated uh, in, in their interaction. You know, we, we, we've gotten rid of most of the easier ones, and, and even those can still cause some trouble in, in folks. But uh, keeping the immune system healthy, so rest, exercise, those are two uh, very simple ways that we can support the immune system. And, of course, in your practice, you use right. herbs and other... Lots of herbs. Um, and there are many ways. Uh, I often see combination treatments of using herbal medicine, using antibiotics, making sure lifestyle yeah. um, issues, diet, exercise. Absolutely. Um, all of those play a, a factor. And, um, you know, I, I've seen people use homeopathy and feel better. Um, I've seen people use different kinds of Western herbs and feel better, and then I've seen people do all the combinations. Some feel better, some don't. So yeah. it's a very, it feels very tricky and, and amorphous somehow in terms of, of, of how is, to go about this. I, I think it is and it isn't. I, I don't want um, 
practitioners or or people to get the idea that this is a mystery that is you know uh, beyond our ability to to grapple with or beyond our ability to solve it's recognizing patterns of illness and addressing as many uh, ways to wellness as we can and I think mm-hmm. individualizing treatment cannot be emphasized enough we really have to make the treatment specific to the individual. So I'm also understanding, because we're looking at different aspects of the cell or where, and we were talking about red blood cells and white blood cells and where the bacteria and the spirochetes live and hide, are you, uh, is, is it common to be prescribed a number of antibiotics at the same time? Is that a typical... Well, in early Lyme disease, no. 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 I right. think in early disease, common. a single agent is most commonly given. Is that the right approach? It appears to work. So I guess so. And, you know, antibiotics are not smart bombs. They are not benign. Every decision we make in medicine is a weighing and balancing of the risks and benefits um, for an individual patient. And you, as you point out, using probiotics to support uh, the digestive system is useful, using herbs to support the immune system. I mean, there are many things we can do adjunctively, but we want to uh, do as much good and cause as little harm as possible, and so that's the approach. In later manifestations and later stages of disease, uh, it is often found that using a combination of antibiotics can be beneficial because you can attack the bacteria at different um, places in which they can reproduce themselves. So we call some antibiotics cell wall agents, but if the bacteria is inside of a cell, very difficult to get at it. Uh, if the bacteria is in a biofilm or in a cyst form, very difficult to get at it. So other antibiotics become more necessary later in it. Uh, our goal really is to try to get folks to prevent this disease and recognize it early because everything past that is a little bit more difficult in terms of treatment and in terms of diagnosis. Mm. Um, when we think about how someone gets to be late in this infection, uh, it, it sometimes happens because symptoms are mild and a patient doesn't really, you know, when do you go to the go to the doctor? When you can't stand it anymore. That's so right. maybe you weren't sick enough. Maybe it went away. So flu coming back over and over should catch your attention, should catch your doctor's attention. Well, certainly if there's a malaria-like component to some, to which one of the... Uh, ba- uh, babesia. Babesia, then it would be cyclical. Things would come right. and go. And so you, it you might would catch start your needing to pay attention to right. that. Yeah. And, uh, is, you know, we, we've heard of things like chronic fatigue syndrome. Is that different? I mean, how do we... Is it part of it? How do, how do we know? Huh? Great question. A lot of individuals with chronic fatigue syndrome probably have an infection underlying it. There have been some infectors like mycoplasma that have been suggested as, uh, uh, if not causative, at least a co-conspirator in chronic fatigue. But, you know, chronic, interestingly, if you look at the definition for chronic fatigue syndrome, you kind of have to rule out some other things, including Lyme disease. That's on the list. So, so it's on the list. It's on the list. So, but then we get back to our testing dilemma because we, as we discussed last time, that there's, it's not always the definitive 
answer. It's an imperfect world. It and is. and the testing has limitations and it's important for individuals and for their practitioners to know that there are limits to testing. That's true in all of medicine. Right. There are limits to the testing. So if you understand the limits and you have a strong clinical suspicion, then it's important to pursue that suspicion and um, you know, utilize the the means at your disposal to uh, figure it out. So being a creative uh, diagnostician then requires a little bit of um, perhaps intuition, but also a bit of, uh, you know, some, because I'm understanding if for the first test, the ELISA test, if it's negative, then there's, it's not warranted the way it's written to have a Western blot, but the Western blot might give us more information. It may not. So if you're in that situation, it's, you know, how do we deal with that? This is sorry really, to put you on the spot there. Or I'll be on the spot. That's okay. This has really been a, a significant problem with this whole um, uh, issue for many years, really. The two-tiered testing protocol, which is recommended, was actually developed for surveillance case purposes. And surveillance is uh, following the trend in diseases. So what we want to do with surveillance is be exclusive. We want every case to be Lyme and absolutely nothing else. So maximizing what's called specificity works in that. If we look at the specificity of the two-tiered method, it approaches 100%. So, you know, if, if you pass the two-tier protocol, <laughs> it, it's pretty clear that um, you have exposure and that may be what explains your symptoms. But we have to be careful because the lab does not make this diagnosis for us and it does not rule it out. All these antibody tests tell us is that you have exposure. It is your clinician and you who have to figure out if that exposure is what is causing your disease. So it still requires that the clinical picture fit. So the other part of that is the sensitivity, how able we are to pick up disease with these tests. And unfortunately, the two-tiered method misses a lot of cases. Uh, there has always been concern over false positives, but we know that the false positive rate is somewhere between 7 and 10%. Unfortunately, the false negative rate approaches more like 40%. That's a big number if you're sick. So it's important for individuals and for their clinicians to understand the limits of the testing. Um, Stricker and Johnson did a nice study looking across the board at the sensitive, the overall sensitivity and specificity of this two-tiered method using um, studies in the literature, and the sensitivity was about 56%. That's not good enough for, for a screening system to work. Uh, the Western blot alone has uh, a sensitivity that's, uh, generally speaking, between 70 and 80 percent, we might miss about 20 percent of cases. There lot. are individuals who have what's called negative Lyme disease. So if your clinical suspicions are high, you have to honor that and, and go. And, and I, I'm not even really speaking about intuition here. I'm talking about putting together the story, the physical findings, um, the objective and subjective findings, mm -hmm. uh, supportive or non-supportive laboratory information. So let's say we do these uh, lab tests for Lyme and we get some antibody reactions to um, parts of the bacteria that are very specific to this infection. That's what I call supportive data. It's not diagnostic. 
it's supportive. And then you put that whole picture together with how someone responds to treatment. That's how medicine is practiced. This isn't new. This is, this is how medicine is practiced. But somehow, yeah, um, I feel like some of my clients would say they're missing that list that you just yeah. that you just uh, presented. And um, so I guess what we're telling, educating people is these are the questions to ask your doc. Yeah. And if they're not answering it, then, yeah. you, you know, that, I mean, these are important, well, important information to know how to how to in, be a team player. Exactly you know? that. We need to work together yes. for wellness. That's yeah. that's the way to go. Exactly. So we're um, we're here at uh, WERU. It's a healthy option special on ticks and Lyme disease. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier, Constance Happy Dickey, about ticks, Lyme disease, and co-infections. So, um, Happy, let me ask you. You do the the uh, well. First, we should. Do the website because there's mainlime.org and tell me what that is. Um, Mainlime is a rec- um, recently formed nonprofit um, whose mission is to provide education and awareness and prevention tactics um, to people in the state of Maine. Um, we do a lot of talks and health fairs and work with B um, to go around and, and do public education. We field a lot of calls from people who have questions about tick-borne diseases. And we um, have a paper on there that's called I Have a Tick Bite, What Do I Do Now? That's been very helpful to people who um, are searching for answers quickly. Usually people don't pay a lot of attention to this until it happens to them. Oh, absolutely. Um, And so we found that paper has been very useful um, to other people. It's a, the website is a work in progress, of course. You know, we're always trying to work on new stuff to get on the website um, for information purposes. And um, I just say that we have a, a number of, uh, of other, uh, on the archives on weru.org, we have other um, websites that people can find out about treatment and um, more information that they uh, that they might need. Is there any other websites that we should be telling people about now, or to get information about how to proceed? If I think there are um, some other important websites. I also wanted to say that on our um, mainline.org website, we have a calendar that does list all of our support groups and the contact information around the state. It also lists all of our public outreach um, attempts talks that we have at different places, showing of movies, um, whatever, you know, wherever we're going to be, we try to get that on there. Um, Some of the other websites that are important are the Lyme Disease Association, has a lot of information for patients, has a doctor referral system on that website, and then there's ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, has a great deal of information, has information for providers, um, has information about their um, fall conference that's coming up and looks to be very exciting. Oh, where where will um, that be? It's we... in Boston this oh. year, so it's close. Um, it's a it's a three day conference. Do we know when that is? Or? Um, it is November second, I believe. The first weekend in November, but I can't remember the dates. Okay, well, two, three, so four. That, that's Maybe. ILADS. 
islands to yeah. get more information about that that sounds like that would be an right. exciting place to be if this is you want to know more about that um doc, doc, dr santier b um did we um are there any questions i haven't asked think what what do we want to you know what do we want to uh in the last few minutes we have about uh, do we have a number of minutes okay. we actually have time well i uh questions you haven't and hardly ever are there questions you haven't asked Rhonda. but <laughs> I guess uh, the one thing I, I wanted to talk a little bit about perhaps are some of the symptoms that individuals with later uh, manifestations yes. might show up with mm -hmm. because I, I think it's important for people I, I'm not trying to make individuals paranoid you know we really think this we're in, we live in Maine we're going to continue to work and recreate outdoors we just need to learn to do it safely that said, some individuals might miss the earliest manifestations of this disease. You know, we talk about it in stages, but those stages aren't entirely real. It's just a convenient way to talk about the disease. Some people show up with all of the stages manifesting at once. So it can be a spread infection, the first that it's recognized. And some of the symptoms that we do find is, I call it a multi-system, multi-symptom illness when it's in its later form. So you may continue to have fever and fatigue. Um, the fatigue can be quite debilitating, so it's important to know about that. Some individuals have what we call fibromyalgic symptoms, and fibromyalgia is one of those uh, diagnoses that really isn't quite a diagnosis. It's a description. It is a syndrome because we don't entirely understand causation. We understand some of what's happening, but not necessarily an explanation for why. Um, so achiness and tender points associated with fatigue and some immune problems tend to describe fibromyalgia, and we can see those kinds of things in folks with Lyme. Individuals can have swollen joints, uh, painful joints, actual frank arthritis, it's often in not all of the joints. It's not usually symmetrical. That is, it's not usually both knees. It's usually one or another. It's ankles. It can be wrists. But uh, later manifestations may include uh, coming and going of these swollen, painful joints. There can be uh, very serious neurologic problems, problems with the way you're able to think and learn and process information, problems with your ability to recall uh, problems with organization, problems with reading. Um, all parts of the eye can be involved, uh, whether it's conjunctivitis, that is the outside of the eye, the middle eye, or the, the optic nerve itself. So optic neuritis or papilledema can be involved. Vision can be affected, and that's important to identify and treat. People can have problems with their digestive systems, uh, problems with mood, Pro that is to say depression and anxiety, there have been papers written about anxiety as the first presenting sign in this infection. And when you go through what I usually tell folks, none of these probably occur on their own. You don't need to have all of them either, but there tends to be a company it keeps factor. So if you have anxiety issues and joint things and, and headaches, then maybe it's got to come up onto the radar that you have to look for these systemic problems. You also have to look for things that look like it. So I'm not suggesting that it's only Lyme that does this, but Lyme has to enter into that, and we can't rule it out just using a simple lab test. It requires uh, persistence 
and mm-hmm. and a little more in-depth discovery. So, And that's where some of these combination of antibiotics, and if, if we hear of the people who've gone to 17 doctors and, you know, this doctor and that doctor, um, so that's where this kind of multi-treatment approach would be beneficial, necess- perhaps. Beneficial. So yeah. ke- and I, I think that, you know, be, be, be cautious. Uh, if, if the result you're hearing is, I don't know what you have, but I'm sure it isn't Lyme, uh, ask why. Why are you sure it isn't? If why it's just sure based it on the lab test, let's reconsider. Let's, let's think hard about this. Yes, so. let's. Uh, because treatment works. Because treatment works. Treatment works. And so if you have any of those symptoms or you've had them for a long time and it's very confusing, these are the questions to bring into your healthcare professional. Yeah. And yeah. Or, well, or go to, the, to mainlime.com, find, find out. Dot org. Dot org. And okay. we'll find some uh, good referrals for you. Just looking for that. Looking for the outro. It's here somewhere. I knew it was here. So um, we th- thank you so much. We've been speaking with uh, our guests, Dr. Beatrice Santier and Happy Dickey, who's a registered nurse. And um, this is uh, Rhonda Feynman. I'm uh, the host of this special, Healthy Options. And um, what we're finding is that you can find all of this on the website on weru.org it'll be archived and uh, there are other healthy website links on that website and again Dr. Beecher Santier Happy Dickey registered nurse thanks to Amy Brown for engineering Petra Hall for co-producing and uh, be safe do tick checks thanks for tuning in <laughs>